Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which definitely count. And I'm Mischievous Mark Chinacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, but the annuals don't count. Well, everybody, welcome to the Amazing Spider-Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. Thanks for joining us for this review episode of the Amazing Spider-Talk. Yeah, thanks, everybody. So today on the show, Dan and I are going to be discussing Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5, number 48, Legacy number 849, which is written by Nick Spencer, with pencils by Mark Bagley, inks by Roberto Poggi, colors by David Curiel, letters by VCs Joe Caramanga, and a cover by Mark Bagley. At least that's what we have to assume, because the credits page of this issue credits Marcelo Ferreira as the penciler, and he definitely wasn't the penciler, so... Dan, all bets are off, up is down, black <laughs> is white, cats and dogs sleeping together, chaos. What's The issue was first released on September 9th, 2020. I think that we can believe in because we were there. <laughs> truly, truly. I, I mean, I wasn't actually there there. I, I, I've been getting the comics shipped to me for the better part of the last few months, Dan. Uh, no, we, 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 we got a little bit of an advancement of the plot here involving the Sin Eater and his, his gang of, of merry Sin Eaters. And they're coming after Norman Osborn, and it even gets the whole Spider Squad involved. And you know, this was a, this was an interesting issue for sure. That kind of dove into that that lovely chestnut of Spider Man's moral kind of quandaries and decision making, and weighing one ethic versus the other. I don't know. What'd you think? What's what, what's what's your kind of broad take on it? I mean, I thought this was a really solid character-oriented issue. It kind of answered a lot of things that I wanted from this story, while also kind of pushing the story into a realm I didn't think we were going down. Like, the kind of shape-shifting of this story from, like, a kindred Sin Eater story into, like, kind of a, like, Spider-Man kill code Norman Osborn story. Like, Sin Eater almost feels like he's just kind of a means of conveyance. I don't feel like he's still a big player in this as much as he is like a tool for Spider-Man to wield, whether he chooses to allow Norman to be cured or not. But, you know, I think ultimately this this issue does a pretty good job of laying out the stakes of that story in a pretty clear way. I even like that we kind of have Madam Web summing up 
all of the moving pieces and stuff. And I don't think stories should be stagnant. So I'm kind of interested that it's evolving. And I think that this had a lot of great character interactions between spider people that like we've wanted for a long time. And so I wasn't expecting this stuff in this story, but I think it's one of the better issues from the Nick Spencer run. You know, I, I am of, of many minds about this issue, Dan, because yeah, I, I mean, on one hand, we definitely got some great character stuff. We got, you know, I feel like we were moving some things forward, I guess, in the overall arc. You know, I've been kind of thinking long and hard about what did this issue actually accomplish? And it's like, you know, I, I, I think a lot of it kind of comes down to do, are, are we trusting Nick Spencer is going to somehow tie all these pieces together over the course of the next issue or two, which are, are, you know, presumably going to be two big kind of milestone issues, both 850 and then 50, because, you know, got a double dip <laughs> on that. Because that's the thing. There's also like a point one issue that's are two point one issues associated with that. So like they're they're like quadruple dipping. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't. I'm not trying to show doubt, but like that's a big if at this point, Dan. Because you know, looking at this on the surface, it's like okay, this was a pretty cool issue. We got in Peter's head a lot. You know, we're kind of going back into Norman Osborn. But you had just said yourself, Sin Eater was has kind of been pushed to the background in this story kindred is even further non-existent and it's like what the heck are we built like like this all needs to come together at once which you know and i know we're not about to get into predictions right this very second if we're going to be spending this much time now with the osborns and reliving gwen stacy's death and you know kind of you got the stacy's and we've had all the litany of lookouts over the last year and a half of of spider-man comics like this all better relate to it because otherwise i feel like (laughs) i am just getting taken for a ride and a ride and a ride and we're getting further away from where the story is supposed to be again and as as interested as i am by it and and that's a little frustrating i gotta be honest with you I, i i am like i feel like we still need to be pointing back into, okay, and how does this tie into the Sin Eater who was set loose by Kindred? And I feel like we're getting away from that again. I feel like Spencer is losing the thread on that. Well, that's my big question about this issue. Like the biggest demerit to me is I don't really see how the Sin Eater and Norman Osborn relate to each other. Like why is Norman Osborn the top target on Sin Eater's list when, you know, like the Sin Eater... I mean, I guess he's ostensibly a Spider-Man villain, but not by any kind of like real choice. Like Spider-Man just so happened to be on the scene, you know, I guess and the relation to like Gene DeWolf. But that's not being emphasized here. And the Green Goblin is even more tangential to the Sin Eater. So like the the tie, you know, the tying connection between them is Spider-Man. And I don't really know quite why. And, And even then, like. The Sin Eater's target isn't Spider-Man to like, I mean, it is through Kindred. Like that seems to be the point is that like Norman Osborn has long been a target of Kindred in some way. And maybe there's a case that Norman Osborn is the most sinful person in New York City. So the Sin Eater needs to go after him. But like, I don't really know what, what is driving the Sin Eater. And I get the kind of like moral thematic question that's being asked here, which is like, about Peter's kill code, you know, 
like even if it doesn't kill him, like, you know, what responsibility does Peter have to a hypothetical, you know, a, a, in both in terms of like Will Norman and kill again, yada, yada. But like, I, I guess I can't really square that circle or whatever. Why? Why Norman Osborn? I feel like we're making many leaps of faith here and, and kind of jumping to conclusions. And, you know, my my guess, because frankly, again, not to jump ahead, it kind of ties into where my predictions are, is that the reason why we're, we're getting this story right now, and we're now getting so much about Norman Osborn is because this is all ultimately all going to be intertwined and related to who is Kindred and maybe perhaps who Sin Eater is. Maybe it's not actually Stan Carter. And mm. I, I More think on that, that later, I suspect. Yes, exactly. I feel that that's why we're getting it. But like, I, I'm making a big guess here. I'm making an assumption. And it could just turn out to be, no, no, these things really aren't as related as they seem. And instead, we just kind of want to do another Peter, you know, kill code or moral code story which is interesting although i mean you know and again we'll get to it when we kind of dive deeper into into this issue itself you know some of the dynamics with the spider the spider gang i i didn't totally buy uh in terms of where their point of views would be at the end of the day i also do enjoy these stories that kind of get into the nitty-gritty of peter's brain and 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 you know kind of putting him in an impossible moral situation whether it be do i save nathan lubeski or save crusher hogan or you know the all of the various situations we've had over the years where you know where peter has had to basically make a choice and both choices are inevitably wrong but that's Peter slash Spider-Man in a nutshell. And I feel like he's at one right here where it's like, do I let the Sin Eater cleanse Norman Osborn, the greatest nemesis? Probably, I would say, the most evil human being in the Marvel Universe. I, I you know, like, I, I know you can make a case for Red Skull or Doctor Doom, but I don't know. I feel like Norman Osborn is pretty awful of a person. A lot of blood on his hands. Coming in with the hot takes. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I kind of feel like there's something about Norman where, you know, he's a businessman. He's this is Red Skull's a Nazi. Dr. Doom is a dictator. What is Norman Osborn? He is just awful, power hungry, rich human being. We pull the analogies of whatever you want from that, you know, is kind of the ultimate person of sin, you know, embodiment of sin. And thus, you know, does he deserve this or not? Like this all has to tie together or this is going to feel like a really wild ride that has no point. And and I hate to be that way, but like, you know, we've gotten plenty of Norman Osborn stories over the last 50 plus years of Spider-Man comics and over the last couple of years of Spider-Man comics, you know, with milestone issues. Like, are we are we just going back to the Norman well here or does this really all tie into Kindred and to Sin Eater in a, in a meaningful way? Yeah, I mean, that's I, I agree with you. I think like Norman is thematically appropriate for this story, right? Like who better to ask this question about cleansing someone of than Norman? But does the story warrant it yet? Does the logics connect? And I don't know that they do. I'm willing to go on the ride, but I, I am reserved like you because I get the writerly understanding, but not the mechanical understanding 
Yeah, because I mean, we went from what's it the what's the what's the 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 stable of villains that got tormented the last issue uh, or two issues ago? Uh, the Lethal Legion. The, or whatever? I mean, yeah, you went from Lethal Legion to one of like the the foremost rogues of the Marvel universe. Yeah, I feel like there are some stops on this train in between that we skipped pretty uh, enthusiastically here. So, you know, again, if this all clicks together, brilliant. If not, what are you doing, Spencer? Because I feel like we've kind of been through this before, not even just with this Kindred arc, but also with Craven, you know, with the last Craven arc. Like, you know, I feel like, you know, we have lots of big ideas, but they don't always get tied together in a neat and, 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 and tidy, well-executed uh, literary way. You know, speaking of trains like skipping, um, <laughs> you know, the the Sin Eaters at the beginning of this story, I'm, I'm calling them the Sin Eaters, I guess it's hench people. They start the story off like committing violence across the city. And to me, that just kind of like rang a little bit false because I thought the whole idea was that all these people were joining up with the Sin Eater because he was kind of anti-violent, that he was clean at cleansing all of these people. And that was his big projected message to the city. Not that he was going to go out with crowbars and, and beat the tar out of everybody. And in my, my suspicion is that like Nick Spencer is trying to kind of like work in a little bit of a political angle here, but I don't think it matches up with the previous issue of established motivation for these characters. I mean, I understand that like there's a line in this book that says like they don't all have the same motivation, but like it is a bit of a jump for me to think that these people would go from like joining up with him and his light gun to being like, let's just terrorize Jersey City or whatever. I said this, I don't know if it was last episode or two episodes ago, but I feel like this story and, you know, the subtext of the Sin Eater and his his followers is being written with a very knowing nod towards the current political situation, but it's not being explicit about it. And thus it's kind of relying on the readers to, I don't want to say agree with Spencer's point of view to kind of really be kind of aware of what's going on in the world right now. And, and, and that's a kind of, it's, it's a tricky situation to be in because, you know, people are at various levels of plugged in or have various, interpretations about what's going on in the world right now and thus to kind of have them connect those dots without spelling it out more in the text which he's not really which Spencer's not really doing here kind of leaves things a little vague and you know in this case a little contradictory so yeah I agree with you Dan I mean I guess that's my 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 long-winded way of saying I agree with you I mean it's it's not so much that I don't buy that they would be acting in this fashion but like I feel like the work hasn't been put in from a comic book content standpoint to demonstrate why they'd be doing this now. It's just like we're kind of like making leaps based on what we might know in the real world, how certain people who say one thing but do another might act. So that's that's a little frustrating from just a straight up like, what am I reading here and what are you giving me to to make me draw those conclusions on my own? Yeah, it's just hypocritical because the only thing that we know about these people who have gathered is that they gathered under Sin Eater's call for kind of like nonviolent transformation of people. So to see them change, you know, off page is kind of strange. I did like, however, though, that when Miles gets involved, that he kind of calls out the hypocrisy of 
of Peter and Miles stopping them, right? Like the idea that like, oh no, we have to stop these masked vigilantes who beat up on whoever they want outside of the law. And it's like, well, that's what you guys do too. And Peter tries to kind of like draw the line a little bit by saying like, well, they're not like, we're not being violent to random people, which I guess is true. But, you know, it does kind of nod towards the fascism of superheroes, which we brought up on the show here and there. You know, I liked at least that Spencer is like at least commenting on the theme. I'm curious to see if he'll do anything more with that because everybody seems to like to acknowledge it and then not actually confront it in any way. Um, Not that I want this whole book to be about that, but, you know, it is something to say for another day. And it, it, and it feels to me and it kind of ties into what we get further on into this issue that like Peter is kind of like he's a very naive voice in this comic, you know, like and it, and, it, and it kind of strikes me as odd, especially in contrast to Miles, who's the kid, who's the inexperienced Spider-Man, that Peter is kind of the one being so naive and kind of, you know, well, yeah, but we're different. And Miles is kind of being savvier and, you know, a little more cutthroat about what it is they are and what it is they need to do as heroes. Not to bring real world politics into this, though, but, you know, it made me think about Miles as a character, this, you know, young African-American man, right, who may have experienced authority figures in his life kind of like operating in a way that's contrary to the law. So, you know, m- maybe there's a lesson that he has to teach Peter there. It doesn't really get much lip service in the text, but if I wanted to no prize it, maybe that would be the direction I would go. Yeah. I mean, you could definitely no prize it that way, but I mean, I feel like if you kind of look at the history of these two characters, I mean, not that, I mean like P- Peter, that's the thing. It's like Peter throughout this comic rings true to me. Like, I feel like these are struggles he would be having emotionally, uh, ethically. I don't know if the supporting cast rings is true here. Like, I don't know if Miles Miles is coming forward. And I know that, you know, in, in the Ultimate Universe, their Norman Osborn kills Peter Parker, but also their Norman Osborn comes becomes a literal goblin and they even made the comment you know the more the more you know even though we're different universes things things are similar and it's like yeah but not always you know (laughs) like it's not it's not necessarily apples to apples here in my opinion so i don't know like what what from miles biography that we know of in the comics is allowing him to kind of talk as this kind of jaded cynical person I, I I have yet to see it with the Miles stories I've read and certainly in the few interactions that Miles has had with Peter in the comics, right? Yeah, I think that's really accurate. I mean, I like the idea behind the beat that, you know, uh, Miles enters into this world with like a level of cynicism in regards to he's already seen a Peter Parker die at the hands of the Goblin although that wasn't true necessarily right. because he was reborn a few months later, but I don't really want to get into that right. <laughs> because I think that's a total mess yeah. that was never really wrapped up. Right. I think the idea behind this is really great, but I agree with you. I think the characters are a little too cynical, you know, are a little too world weary. Although I, I also appreciate that Peter is kind of like, and however naive he is, he's kind of the North star. And I find that refreshing because North Star, even even if it's like an incorrectly placed guide, 
right? Whether you agree with Peter or not, that it is his duty to save Norman. I like him leading on this, but you're right. It is, it is. That's the one thing that really stood out to me here is like, I don't know that I believe that all of these spider characters would feel this way, but I do think that Spencer puts in a bit of the work to try to convince us with that Norman flashback. Although I will say also, and I'm not, I'm like a couple months behind on Miles's book. Does Miles actually remember all of this stuff? Like I thought it was my understanding that he didn't really remember his history in the ultimate universe. So I don't know. Someone's going to chime in here and tell me that I'm wrong about that because I'm like three months behind on miles Morales. Cause he's dealing with that right now in the pages of the ulti- or the miles Morales Spider-Man book with this whole like ultimatum villain. Yeah. I don't know. That's that stuck out to me as like, Oh, I didn't know that he remembered all this nonsense. Yeah. I'm, I'm equally behind. I have not read a new miles issue in a couple of months. So I, I can't, I can't answer that question for you on the air. So, so it's up to you, dear listeners to, to tell us how wrong we are. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah. Now what else, was there anything else about the Peter and miles interaction that really stuck out to you? There was some good, good stuff to be mined from it for sure. Right. For sure. I mean, I think it's like a great example of like Mark Bagley's kind of sensitive work as a penciler. Uh, it takes me back to like ultimate Spider-Man days where he could just do a really kind of like human scene between two people. Although at the same time, I'm thinking how cavalier are Peter and Miles just taking their masks off in the middle of New York City where there's likely to be hundreds of eyes on them. I don't know. It's the kind of thing you have to forgive a little bit because I'm sure they wanted this emotional scene between the two of them and them being in masks wouldn't really cut it. But the whole time I was thinking, aren't there going to be like a hundred camera phones on these two? It's right like, now? M- it's like MCU Spider-Man, Dan. I mean, you know, when did, when is the mask ever on now? <laughs> and I really love the beat of like Peter acknowledging that if he were to die, miles would step up in his place because I feel like that is a sentiment that even after all this time has not really been expressed in the six, one, six universe. Because Miles has kind of largely been relegated to his own book and Amazing Spider-Man has kind of forgotten that this character exists other than that one weird Iron Man arc (laughs) that Dan Slott wrote, which I definitely did not, you know, uh, concern this because I think they ended up fighting in those issues. Yeah, it was weird. So this feels like an interaction that I feel like should have happened years ago. I like that Peter acknowledges that he can be more kind of cavalier about his work as Spider-Man because he knows that there's someone in the wings waiting to take up his spot. And I thought that was like a nice sentiment. You know, Miles is kind of the heir apparent, whether we get that kind of acknowledgement in the comics themselves, I would say for sure that, you know, if we ever decide to, to sideline Peter again for an extended period of time, it's going to be miles in the main book for sure. You know, from, from there we, we kind of got a uh, "This Is Your Life" Norman Osborn little sequence uh, with you know some callbacks to Absolute Carnage. You know, there's a little flashback to the people in Peter's life that Norman has killed, and we had one interesting one. I thought here, Dan, uh, <laughs> wouldn't you say? <laughs> I mean, we had Flash Thompson, which is from the most recent uh, storyline from from 800, and of course Gwen. Gwen, Gwen, Gwen. Which I think has that really nice panel transition of the snap. Yes, absolutely. Bagley totally knocking this out of the park here. 
But then we also get a visual callback to Spider-Man and Harry Osborn from Spectacular 200, which is, of course, the death of Harry Osborn. The death of Harry Osborn, which was later undone by both Brand New Day and then a later retcon story written by Dan Slott in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man in that kind of post-Brand New Day era little weird that Harry Osborn's death would be grouped together with two people, you know, someone who's not technically dead would be grouped with two people who are most discernibly dead. I don't know. Any any thoughts on that, Dan? I do, actually. I, I, what interested me as well about this is the kind of visual framing callback to those absolute carnage issues of Amazing Spider-Man, where we saw the party that all the friends had gathered uh, at for Flash Thompson's like return and Harry's kind of dealing like post with drugs. And if you remember in that issue, it went through these three friends again and showed their faces in close-ups and kind of framed them. And I think at the time we were like, is this our gallery of potential kindred suspects? There was kind of an <laughs> implication that like kindred was somebody at this party in some way. And I think we both ended those issues saying, well, it seems very obvious that they're pointing. I think I called it a red herring, but it seemed very obvious that they were pointing the direction at Harry Osborne here. And this is the exact same like visual uh, framing of these three characters, calling them friends, allies, etc. This isn't a mistake. Like Nick Spencer is thematically calling back to those previous issues. I don't know what for, but I think there's like a real reason. Uh, and I would imagine, uh, you know, send up the kindred alarm because uh, I think there's something going on here with that. Yeah. Mark. Yeah, you? I agree. And, and, and like, again, kind of calling back to that other issue that you were referring to with like the Ramita, you know, the Ramita callbacks, Harry, Gwen and Flash from the Ramita Stanley era. I mean, what what are what are we talking about here? We're talking about kind of an age of youth and innocence. In in those three characters being grouped together here. Now, granted, you know, obviously in the in the instance of Flash and Harry, they're a little older than they were in the late 1960s. But like, I think we're still being led to believe like that at their core, these are young pure, innocent characters that were corrupted, in this instance by Norman Osborn, corrupted to the point of death and perverted. When you're talking about the Sin Eater, for example, too, like, you know, like corrupting youth, you know, like, why, you know, that's a, that's a really, that's a bad sin, wouldn't you say? So, like, I mean, you know, who might have an axe to grind about that besides Stan Carter? I don't know. Maybe there's somebody uh, that from Spider-Man Pass that we've been getting a lot of callbacks to over the last year and a half. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, Kindred's whole thing is about protecting innocence and, and he blames Norman for being, you know, the corruption of youth and being very good at it. So yeah, I mean, you're on to something here. I do find it odd that this is framed as though Harry died because we have Harry Lyman wandering around that ostensibly we were told is not is the same Harry Osborn. I mean, if I didn't know better, I would think that Spencer forgot that Harry Osborn isn't dead because he's never shown up in the pages of these comics other than in flashbacks. But there's definitely or. something there. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, or the red herring isn't a red herring. And, I, I, uh, well, you know, or, or, you know, like, hey, remember, 
a few years ago, we got it's Norman Osborn with a face transplant. So I mean, like you know, in, it's comics, baby. We can we can twist the twist the screw any way we want to make something different and not necessarily exactly what you think it is. So uh, I can't wait till we start talking about our predictions, Dan. <laughs> so um, yeah, no, I mean it's really it's really interesting. Uh, so in terms of mysteries, because we'll put a pin in that one, we've got this ongoing mystery with like there's an earlier scene with Norman where he's kind of like being asked if he wants to retreat from you know, the Ravencroft and he's like, no, we can handle it. And it shows the image of that barricaded door again with a Katoom sound from behind it, which in my mind is like an explosion. I don't know if that's like a goblin bomb or something. Did, did you have any reading on this? Because like the way the panels are sequenced, the suggestion is that like, it's two different people. So my idea about it being where Norman goes to become the goblin seems a little bit out there unless he was able to pull, use the isotopic genome machine from the beginning of this arc and split the goblin and Norman into two separate people, which could be how he got a clean bill of health. That's my new theory <laughs> that the goblin and Norman are two separate people and the goblin is stored in there. But like, if it's not the goblin, who would it be? First of all, what do you think of my theory? And what do, what do you think about who it might be in there? I mean, you have, I think, from the beginning, whether I'm, I'm trying to remember what what has been said on this show versus what you and I talk about privately, Dan. But like, I know you have theories about other people that might be involved in this story that we have not physically seen in this story yet. And not to be difficult, but like I, I, I don't necessarily have opinions about that. Like you, you know, like I, I, I guess I, I haven't read it to that. I haven't read those scenes to that degree of speculation yet, and maybe I should be. But like I, I'm like I, I just kind of didn't. I didn't. I didn't read the scene the same way as you did. So I mean, if you got some theories, throw them out there for sure. I mean, that's the theory. Is there a theory that I'm not mentioning that that I've talked to you about that I'm forgetting? Right oh now? no, no. Then I, I'm I'm I might be confusing it with something else. Uh, no, but that's an. I mean, you know, splitting the goblin into two. I mean, why not? I mean, that's and like you said, that would definitely explain how Norman all of a sudden got a clean bill of health. That's a big leap for sure. <laughs> I mean, he seated that device in the first issue of his run. You know, like in my mind, it's like, all right, if we're going to pay this off, we're going to we're going to we're going to get to the point that they're going to cure Norman and nothing is going to happen because the goblin is a separate person. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. I'm probably wrong, but I think that could be really fun. Well, I mean, it's also worth noting in the solicitations, what they've been saying is that the Green Goblin returns, but not Norman Osborn. You know what I mean? Like, and I know I know that's silly, but words matter and the words have definitively been Green Goblin returns in, in is it issue 850? We'll find out, but that's an interesting theory. And like you said, it, 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 again, we're, we're these are these are very giant leaps that we're taking, Dan, that all of these storylines that were introduced early and have kind of been sprinkled throughout are all going to pay off. But, you know, Spencer has demonstrated over the years that he has an ability to kind of pull it all together. I don't know if he's done it as effectively on amazing Spider-Man so far, but like if he can kind of capture that magic from what he's done on some of the other books that he's worked on, 
that would certainly be a really cool way to link back to, like you said, the very first story that he wrote about on this book. Well, I just put it out there. We'll see if it comes true. But if I were writing the book, which is not a good way to judge anything, <laughs> I would do that. Uh, <laughs> that's what I would be doing right now. So let's get back to the kind of meat of this, although I guess we haven't really deviated that much. So like the Sin Eater then seems to give, and I thought like a really kind of disturbingly illustrated uh, sequence, he seems to give all of his followers his powers to cleanse. I don't know what they're doing if they're like sucking people's sins into their crowbars and baseball bats uh, or how that physically works. But that seemed to be my interpretation of what's going on here is he's like bestowing upon them his powers of, of some kind. Do you want to talk about Spider-Gwen at all? I think we have to. I think in terms of people's feelings about this issue, this was one of the people's favorite sequences, at least on my Twitter timeline. This is the one that I saw everybody sharing because they enjoyed it so much. Mark, I, I know that you were a little annoyed by how much people were sharing images of this issue online is this one of the the sequences that was kind of spoiled for you yeah for, you know again people can you can you not spoil things on twitter um but besides that it was a really interesting scene and i feel like you know it's an interaction between peter and and spider gwen that frankly i've always kind of wanted to see because like we've we've had multiple stories since gwen you know spider gwen was introduced five, six years ago, where, like, you know, they've kind of tap danced around the fact that, like, hey, this was, this is the woman that Peter first fell in love with, you know what I mean? This is a pivotal character in Peter's history. But, like, outside of the fact that, like, oh, in her universe, she lost Peter, in his universe, he lost Gwen, and that's kind of their shared sorrow, I don't feel like they actually dealt with some of the emotions that were maybe there for these characters in their respective universes, and... And this scene, I felt kind of more directly than we've seen in in any other stories kind of address that. And I, I, I was kind of there for that. I, I was intrigued by that. What about, what about you? I thought it was a really interesting sequence. I agree with you. It's like something that I feel like we needed addressed for a long time. But then it also goes like a step further and it like reaches out to like the audience, it like breaks the fourth wall and becomes this almost like meta commentary on how the Gwen character has been remembered over the years. And I thought that was really interesting. It was kind of like trying to like redeem the legacy so that the character isn't just someone who died. And I think spider Gwen has like in avoiding this conversation has kind of avoided that kind of icky connotation, which is like people don't really know a lot about the original Gwen, but she was a character that people really loved and Spider-Gwen is kind of reinventing that legacy. So I thought it was kind of like appropriate that the Spider-Gwen character would stick up for her like progenitor and suggest like, no, she wasn't just this angelic, you know, perfect human being uh, who like in the virginal death, you know, uh, you know, of Gwen. She was a complicated character, but she was in, in, in certain instances. Although also while bringing up the non-angelic, non-virginal Gwen, it starts to get me thinking back about like Sin's past. And like, I don't think that he was referring to Sin's past here, but like I could definitely read that 
as a reference to Sin's past. I got to think that even Sp- Spencer wouldn't touch that third rail. But hey, you know, like it's 2020, yo. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this was, this was a really fascinating sequence. Like you said, I agree about how Gwen here kind of talks about Gwen, the character, in a way that, you know, we have talked about her and have even talked about her with her with her murderer, Jerry Conway, in terms of the projection of the character. <laughs> and I think it's it's good to kind of have that in the text of the book itself. But I also feel like of all of the spider people, like her kind of coldness to Peter about his choice felt the most justified because it was like you said, because it was coming from this place of like, you know, you your naiveness is also kind of robbing these people that you feel you're defending of some semblance of agency. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're, you're kind of just putting them in these like very impossible to uphold pedestals, you know, instead of thinking about things more pragmatically about what you need to do. So like, like hers was the one voice I felt kind of that rung true amongst the spider people. I mean, does that make sense or, or did you see it differently? Oh, no, I totally agree. I mean, I also think like the way Mark Bagley renders this on the back of like a subway heading into New Jersey, I just thought like he ascended to like God level in in this sequence. I just think it's one of the strongest kind of like characters emoting, like even with their masks on, there's just a lot of emotion here. And that really felt true to me. And like her ultimate decision of saying like, it's your choice, Jen, uh, you know, Gwen would want you to make that choice. It's like one of the few times I've ever seen Spider-Man's call with his fist raised that he would avenge her death actually be referenced in this book. But also it's like her saying this absolves him of that. And so it felt like a real healing moment, which is something we very rarely get for Peter, right? If all of these actions are meant to be his attempt to heal from the uncle Ben's death, Like to me, this was like a big step for him in terms of healing from uh, Gwen's death. And, you know, sometimes you want your character to not feel that pain all the time. And, you know, and I I like that. No, just a great sequence. Something that I feel like we've been waiting for for a while and to some degree. But again, yeah, don't spoil it, people. (laughs) Come on. Give it a few days. (laughs) We don't all we don't all get comics on New Comic Book Day. I'm sorry, especially especially in the era of covid. So with that said, we want to talk a little bit about Julia Carpenter, Madam yeah, Web. Yeah, sure, why not? I mean, uh, you know. Who I have to be reminded is Madam Web. Right, right. <laughs> Every time and they, she and they, and they, they flat out remind you it's Madam Web in this issue. Like, oh yeah, her. <laughs> she used to be Spider-Woman and now she's Madam Web. I was like, oh, right. <laughs> she's like the new The Watcher. She like literally shows up and is like, something of significance is going to happen here. But what I liked about this was Rather than being like, here's some cryptic tease of your future. She's like, I can't tell your future. But what she operated as was kind of like a a clarifying moment where she laid out the stakes and laid out the choice for Peter. And for me as a reader, where there's so many moving pieces going on, I just kind of appreciated this moment of clarity, right? Because there's like so many different factions, whether it's the Sin Eater, his followers, Norman, Peter, all the spider people. I felt like by the time I was done reading her segment, I was like, okay, I'm very clear of where everything is going at the moment. What else you got on this issue, Dan? Well, I feel like, you know, this 
sequence with uh, Madam Web concludes with, um, you know, her saying that Norman will kill again if you like allow him to stay alive. And so then that's that, you know, eternal question we always ask about the kill code, which is like, is it just to allow someone you know is going to kill again to live? And Spider-Man's kind of always hid behind that as a way to kind of like say like, it's not my job to be the, you know, the judge, jury and executioner, I guess, except for in the Gene DeWolf story where he kind of tried to take that into his own hands in this book, they seem to imply that that he makes a choice. And at first they want you to think that like, he's going to go and allow Norman to be cleansed because it shows images of like aunt May and Mary Jane and his closed fist. And then it pulls like a twist on us that he actually like is rescuing Norman. But I don't think it's quite so cut and dry. I don't think he's really going there to like rescue him. I think he's got some other plan that's somewhere in between. I don't know what that is, but I think we're being left deliberately out of Spider-Man's thinking process at the, in this final sequence when we've gotten so much of his narrative captions because he's as a, an active protagonist thinking about something that we aren't. I mean, I think about, um, the, uh, sequence from coming home where he injects himself with radiation. That's a little bit less deliberate, but we were kind of like, we didn't really know what was going to ultimately happen. I think we're going for a moment like that in this book where, you know, something is going to happen to Norman one way or the other, and it will either be in Spider-Man's hands by him outsmarting the system or some other freak accident. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I definitely did not read it in that way, but like I'm not disagreeing with you in any way. So I mean this was it was a it was a cool sequence for sure. We get the sucker punch yeah. callback. Yeah. Now where did you think that was from? Was that from um which Ramita story? Is that um Seth that, that's not the spectacular magazine, is it? It might be. I can't remember specifically, but I know there's an incident where Spider Man kind of swings in to save a bunch of people and Norman knocks him out from behind with a big old sucker punch. I don't know if it's actually a reference to that, but like, eh, I don't know. I, maybe it's just good to see him clocking Norman just in general. Yeah, I mean, you know, Peter punching Norman is always satisfying for sure. Do you? Then we've got these final pages here of the spider people declaring that they have to stop Spider-Man. Right, yeah. Which, you know, I guess means allow Sin Eater to cleanse Norman. And to me, this is where it kind of becomes a bridge too far. Because it's like, okay, we kind of had, you know, these moments with Miles and Gwen and, and Madam Web, but like, you know, to kind of like, have this, you know, someone's got to stop Spider-Man and it's going to be us kind of Calvary here. It just felt a little over the top and unearned for me. I, I, I didn't appreciate it. I don't know. Like, like, I'm not terribly interested in seeing this gang of six, like, trying to, what, like, physically insert themselves into what Peter is doing with Norman. Seems, seems a little silly to me. I have two thoughts about this. One is that I felt like Gwen and Madam Web had given Spider-Man the option, right? Like the whole point of the Gwen sequence was it's your choice. And now, now, now it's like, no, it's not your choice. 
we're going to step in here and 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 thwart you. Yeah, um, that, that's way. a great point too, Dan. Because like I read that and was like, when Gwen is there doing at the end, I was like, wait, was she just like? trying to be like good cop to Peter here and like, you know, but like really was just trying to see, well, if I talk to him like this, is he going to go in this direction? And thus then we're all going to just have to get together and stop it. Like it, it just felt very weird and manufactured and inconsistent to what she was saying earlier in the issue. Like, was she trying to trick him? I don't get it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, again, I think it's operating on thematics over, you know, the specific details from within this issue. And um, Elijah in the chat is suggesting it's the Mendelstrom Ditko issue with the Sucker Punch. Look at this. Relying on this, the chat here to fill in the gaps that we're missing. So thank you, Elijah, for that. Well, very cool. Mark, we are uh, closing out this issue. I thought still for all of our talking, a strong issue. I think maybe I have a little more faith than you do that this is all going to come together. But I certainly think however it comes together, there's going to be some cheating involved. Yeah, I mean, it's not that I don't have faith. It's just... You know, I don't want to I don't want to make an assumption here. Like, let's see it, you know, like, let's let's see. And like you said, yeah, there'll be some cheating. But how much cheating are we actually going to see here? Do you want to get to grades? Yeah, sure. And just to echo you, like there are so many thematics that like are unaddressed that I don't know that we'll ever come back to, like overdrive being killed by the police potentially in the hospital. Like there's all these things that like I feel like are in vastly in the rear view and altogether, the whole thing is a little shaggy. So, yeah, I mean, that goes into my grade. I'm giving this one a B. I think it's a solid B. Yeah, I mean, I'm not terribly behind you on this. I'm I'm, I'm going B minus. I mean, like, I, I feel there is enough there to really make this an interesting story. But, yeah, I like like I need to see, I need to see how this is all going to be ultimately executed. And I don't want to, like, get too far ahead of myself in heaping praise on it until I can see for sure what's going on here. Mark, I'm just now realizing you had a whole theory about the Sin Eater that we never talked about. Do you want to lay that out here? Well, are we? do we want to do this here or do we want to do that? Because I know we want to talk about Kindred at some point. Like what I, I can do it in there as well because like, I kind of think it's all related. So what, uh, it's up to you, Dan. All right. Well, then let's let's table it. Let's table it and we'll get to it there in that in that episode. Excellent. Unless there's anything else, it is that time, time for all good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning in to this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. Yeah, this episode was edited by Rick Coast with production support from Andy Myers. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friends, Sal Buscema, and Ray Sumzer. And our theme songs were produced by Rylan Bojack, Tony Thaxton, and Spider Madge. This episode was originally released on Patreon as a live stream hangout with us back when the comic was first released. So if you'd like to help support our show's continued existence and these reviews while joining us on the live stream, why not head on over to our Patreon and sign up? So, Mark, until Spider Gwen and the Green Goblin have green spider babies who try to kill Peter Parker, what's our motto? That motto, of course, is with great podcasts, there must also come the amazing spider talk. Don't, don't miss the next instant.